I'd like to think Jesus is a great person. Uh, I just, I, it's a, it's to me, it's a silly story. Jesus is It's idolization, basically, the idea that there is a human being that can be viewed as a god. I I, I believe it, that uh, the teachings of Jesus uh, they ring true to me. This the way it makes sense to live that way. Jesus, I believe, was a liberal, and I think looking at where we're going. I think he'd be happy to see that people are becoming more and more accepting. I think I'm, I grow more curious about that every day um, uh, and, and how I can be a better person, um, maybe by following his teachings. And, and maybe it will be a, a fit for me and maybe it won't. But, you know, I'll, I have a lifetime to figure that out. Well, friends, I, I, we got something to celebrate. This week on t- a Tuesday night, the Naperville City Council unanimously voted to approve the purchase of us buying land for the 95th Street campus. We are so excited for all of you. Hey, Huge thanks to all of you who were there. We're so glad you were. You made a huge impact. It was really fun. I'll explain. So there were over a couple hundred people. We filled the room, actually. And one of, some of the council members conveyed that when they see a room that's full like that, they anticipate or assume that everybody's opposed to the motion being proposed. And so there was a little tension in the room until everybody from the Compass Church, would you all stand? And like the whole room stood up. And they're like, oh, you guys are all excited about this. And... And it was unanimous and just a huge blessing from God. So here we go. I want to say hi to all of you and congratulations to those at 95th campus, everybody at Bolingbrook, Wheaton, and Hobson. And we're going to talk now about is Jesus really God? And how can we know that for sure? I want to show you a badge. This is an ID badge that I've had for 30 years, but it's precious to me. It's hard to see, so let's put it up on the screen. How about this, huh? Jeff Griffin, MD. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I was never really a doctor. How this happened, though, is I was pre-med, and part of my college's pre-med program was you had to spend a week at a hospital shadowing doctors to see if you really like this career path. And my father-in-law was a radiologist at Northwest Community Hospital. He was my girlfriend's dad at the time, but he lined it up. And when I arrived at his hospital, he gives me this badge, and I'm like, uh, it says MD. And he's like, yeah, I was thinking about it. I didn't want anyone stopping you from getting into any of the rooms. And so this should take care of that problem. <laughs> and so I was like, baby, yeah. And I, I walked around going, Jeff Griffin, MD, you know, all week. I was just thinking I was big stuff. In one particular moment, uh, I was with a doctor, not my father-in-law, but he had lined me up with this other doctor. And This guy said, hey, we're going to do a tube insertion into a chest cavity. And he explained to me, he goes, it's a very short procedure. I'm actually able to do it in the patient's room without taking them to the surgical room. He said, local anesthesia is enough, and so it's going to go very quickly. 
And I'm like, okay. And so I walked in, and he introduced himself to the woman. And she was an elderly lady, very fearful, understandably. He asked her to roll on her side, and he started preparing the area when she noticed me and my badge. And she said, doctor, can you come here? Oh, yeah. Uh, And I walked up, and she said, is this going to take long? No, ma'am, this is a very short procedure. And she said, "Uh, is it going to hurt? No, ma'am, the local anesthesia is sufficient to remove all pain. You should be just fine. She says, doctor, would you hold my hand? (laughs) That's sweet. And so I'm like, absolutely. And so I held her hand, and I just started encouraging and loving on this woman. I, I should have been a pastor from the start here. And uh, the doctor, real doctor, began, and he put a cut, and he cut between the ribs, and he started putting this tube in, and blood started to roll. And <laughs> and, and the lady's like, doctor, are you okay? <laughs> and all of a sudden, the real doctor goes, nurse! And this nurse comes running to me and grabs my arms and takes me over to this chair and sits me down. And she tells me to put my head between my legs. (laughs) And I hear the poor patient going, doctor, are you okay? (laughs) Uh, Well, I was an imposter. And the fact that I was an imposter was evidenced by the fact that I can't do what really doc, real doctors do, like watch a surgery and survive without passing out, you know? And that's one of the ways to test someone who claims to be something. If someone says, I'm a baker, well, bring them to the kitchen and say, prove it, bake something. If they say, I'm a mathematician, well, bring them to the marker board with a big problem and say, solve it. If they say, I'm a pianist, bring them to a piano and say, go for it. This is a basic way to prove you are who you say you are. And when Jesus Christ says, I am God, then do what only God can do. And that's exactly what he did. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the number one evidence that Jesus is, in fact, who he says he is. Let me uh, read to you a verse that I just love. This is Acts chapter 17, verse 31. The Apostle Paul talking to a, a bunch of people in Athens, Greece, uh, intellectuals, but non believers. And he said this in verse 31 God has given proof to everyone by raising Jesus from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the God-given proof that Jesus is who he is. You know, God had to come up with a miracle that would be so extreme that people would realize, well, that doesn't happen for just an ordinary human being. And and that's the case. A resurrection of, of this magnitude is just that. It's the perfect miracle. And it's also perfect because it's verifiable 2,000 years later. I would point out in this verse, God has given proof to who? Everyone. 
You're part of this, everyone. God knew that this gift of this miracle would be sufficient even 2,000 years later to be a proof of Christ being who he says he is. And that may seem a little awkward to you. You're like, well, how can we know that the resurrection took place 2,000 years ago? We're so separated from the event. Well, you can. And here's how you can. I want to demonstrate, I want to provide three historical facts, just fact. They're, they're historically verifiable. And when you know these facts are true, then you can know they lead to the resurrection of Christ being true. And here, here's uh, what we've got. We've got evidence for these facts provided on a card. In fact, in your navigator, you should be able to pull out this evidence card. Some of you are like, oh no, I, I didn't pick up a navigator. I wish I did. Well, I'd like to invite the ushers at all of our campuses at this point to come down and pass out more of these cards. We got plenty for everybody. So simply raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one because you want to go home with this life-altering evidence. And you'll see that the evidence is grouped into three facts, three historical facts. The first being a revolution. Let's put that on the screen here. It's a historical fact that there was a Christian revolution in the first century. That means at the very beginning, Christianity exploded. It wasn't a real small, slow start. It was a kaboom. People by the thousands were trusting Jesus from the day of his resurrection. Let let me... uh, just to help you understand how... Oh, I wanted to explain this first. This symbol, I have symbols for each of these historical facts. And this one is called the Jerusalem Cross. The big center cross symbolized Jerusalem, the city where it all began, where Jesus died and was resurrected. These four crosses symbolize the four corners of the world. And so this cross really is a symbolic reminder of the expanse And it was a rapid expanse, a revolutionary expanse of this belief in the resurrected Christ. So let's take a look in Scripture as this revolution is described. Here's a verse, Acts 2, verse 32. The apostle Peter is preaching outdoors to thousands in Jerusalem 50 days after the resurrection took place there. And in his sermon he says, God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of the fact. Isn't that beautiful? To this immense audience, Peter could say, the the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a fact, and you're all witnesses of that fact. And it's true. They were. They, They had all seen him dead. I mean, the crucifixion was intentionally public. They found the most popular crossroads where everybody journeyed in that city. And that's where they executed him. So they all saw Jesus hanging and dead. Not only did they see him dead, they saw him taken down by the guards and brought to the tomb. They saw him placed in the tomb. They saw the stone rolled in. They saw the guards posted at the tomb to make sure no funny business took place. And then they heard the story that he was alive. They saw the empty tomb themselves. They saw that no body was produced by the authorities to stop the, the spread of this, this uh, knowledge. And most importantly, 
they either encountered the resurrected Christ themselves or knew somebody who had encountered him. The Bible declares that over 500 people met and encountered the resurrected Christ. When Paul states that number, he says, go talk to them. They're still alive today. And so these people who had firsthand access to the empty tomb, to the people who met the resurrected Christ, if, if they weren't one of them. And they, they knew these people. They could trust them. They looked them in the eyes and say, you're telling me you met Jesus resurrected. And they said, yes. So these folks, they were witnesses, as Peter declares. So how did they respond to Peter's uh, invitation? Look at verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 people were added to their number that day. Not a bad uh, sermon, huh? 3,000 converts in a moment because they were witnesses. They knew it was true. They had seen the facts, and they voted yes to Jesus with their lives, with their devotion. But it doesn't end there. Let me go a few weeks later to Acts 4.4. There it says, Many who heard their message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Now, when it says men, the number is so big, they're having to resort to a method of counting that simplifies by only counting the men. If you want to add women and children, it's well over 10,000 believers in Jerusalem And Jerusalem only had 30,000. So if 10,000 are believers, that means that one in every three people in that city had devoted their lives to this Christ in a short amount of time. That's really telling, friends. It tells us that those who had firsthand access to the empty tomb, to the firsthand witnesses, They were convinced and surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ. It was a revolution that took place. I'll tell you another reason this is really important. Some would say, oh, the resurrection of Jesus is a legend. This is made up. Okay, that's fair. There are some amazing legends that exist. But you need to know something about the formation of legends. It's documented that they are always evolutionary over lots of time. It's, it's when, uh, you know, the story gets exaggerated through oral tradition as it's passed on through the generations. Is it possible for the resurrection to be legend? No, because it's documented in the first century. Everybody at that time believed in it. There's no time for a, a legend to form. Now, I could imagine some pushing back and saying, Jeff, you've quoted Luke in the book of Acts, but he was a Christian. Maybe he exaggerated because he was, you know, inclined to do so as a follower, and it really didn't expand as fastly as Luke is describing. What I love about this card that we've provided is that not only are there biblical historical sources here, there are extra-biblical or outside of the Bible. Uh, In fact, historians from the first century who were not Christians at all, not believers, telling what happened. One of them is Tacitus. Cornelius Tacitus was a German governor of an area called Asia Minor. It was a region of the Roman Empire found in modern-day Turkey. 
And he wrote what's now called the Annals of Tacitus. And he described what was going on in his day. Christ, the name of the founder, was put to death by Pontius Pilate. You know, for all skeptics who say, I don't even know Jesus existed. I don't know he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Historical fact. This Pilate, procurator of Judea, but the destructive superstition broke out not only in Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome as well. Tacitus acknowledging the rapid expanse in the first century of Christianity throughout Judea, all the way to the capital of the empire, Rome, and throughout that city as well. Here's another. Uh, This is a guy by the name of Pliny, Pliny the Younger. He was the Roman governor of Bithynia. And he wrote letters to his boss, the emperor, Emperor Trajan. And here's a quote from him. He says, The issue of the Christians seems important enough to seek your counsel, especially on account of the number of those involved. For there are many of every age, of every rank, and of both genders. This superstition has spread like a contagious disease, not only into cities and towns, but also into country villages as well. Yet there is reason to hope it may be stopped. All right, go for it, Pliny. How'd that go for you? He didn't stop it. But he's acknowledging that in the first century, it was spreading like crazy. And friends, the revolutionary expanse of Christianity in the first century tells us that those who were there and had access to the eyewitnesses and to the empty tomb voted with their lives and said, sign me up. It's not legend, it's fact. All right, so there's the first historical fact pointing to the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. That is the revolution that took place in the first century. The second historical fact is the execution that took place in the first century. This is the ancient symbol for martyr. And the word martyr means two things, actually. It means both witness and murdered one. And that's a perfect term because what we find is that Christian witnesses, those who had witnessed the resurrection, stuck with their story so firmly that they were murdered for their faith. And I have been privileged to be in Rome and went through the catacombs where this symbol is written because it's filled with Christians who went to the grave for their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Why are the executions in the first century evidence of the historicity of of the resurrection? I'll tell you why. You don't die for a lie, simply put. And that was a story, that it was all a lie, that it was a, a hoax, that it was a trick, that really what happened is that the Christians, the disciples, 
beat up the Roman guards guarding the tomb, stole the body, destroyed the evidence of the body, persuaded hundreds to join them in an elaborate lie, all of them claiming to have met the resurrected Christ, knowing full well it never happened, but they're going to fool the world. It sounds ridiculous even saying it, but this was a dominant explanation for the empty tomb, that uh, It's all guys trying to pull over a fast one on the world. Friends, does that make sense? Do you die for a People lie. Let's be clear. Lying abounds. But whenever people lie, it's to gain some advantage or to avoid trouble. You don't lie to get in trouble and lose your life. And do you know that the only of the 12 disciples who didn't die was John, uh, the apostle John. The others went to their death, saying, if you kill me, go ahead, if you must. I'll read a story of a first century execution of a Christian. This one's found in the Bible. It's not one of the 12 disciples, but one of the early leaders by the name of Stephen. It's found in Acts chapter 7, verse 59. Imagine how gruesome this is. While the members of the Sanhedrin were throwing stones at Stephen. Just got to explain The Sanhedrin was the high court in Jerusalem. Stephen had been tried and found guilty of faith in Christ. And stoning was one of the forms of execution where they would pummel a man with stones, beating his body and head until he died from the pummeling. Horrific. While the members of the Sanhedrin were throwing stones at Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, Receive my spirit, he said. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he died. At any point, he could have said, All right, all right, stop it. I admit it's not true. We're all lying to you. There was no resurrection. We've made it up. And in that instant, they would have stopped. But he was going to stick with what he knew to be fact. And he said, if you must kill me, kill me. I mean, I could work with the lying story if I thought all these people were living a sweet life or getting rich by this. The truth was they entered into circumstances of horrific misery to their death because they knew it was true. Friends, you don't die for a lie. (laughs) You know, some would say, well, did they really die back in the first century? Again, that was Luke, a Christian, telling us about it. All right, let's go back to Pliny the Younger and read another quote as he speaks to the emperor. Again, Pliny is the governor of a region, and he's explaining how he deals with this problem. He said, I have taken this course about those who have been brought before me as Christians. I asked them whether they were Christians or not. And if they confessed they were Christians, I asked them again, And a third time, intermixing threats with the questions. And if they persevered in their confession, I ordered them to be executed. Friends, it's a historical fact that our brothers and sisters, those who had access to the the facts, to the eyewitnesses, to the empty tomb, they stood by this. Those disciples, those leaders like Stephen, The ones who knew whether it was all made up or whether they really met the resurrected Christ, they said, kill us. 
And they were killed in mass by the thousands, going to their death, refusing to recant. Friends, you don't die for a lie. The execution of the early disciples and leaders and Christians is a strong evidence for the historicity of what they attested, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right, Uh, I have one more, and that is transformation. Transformation. You'll see the symbol here is uh, the, the delta. Maybe you took science classes. You remember delta is a symbol for change, transformation. Scientists know that anytime there's a radical change, you need a radical cause. Um, I mean, if there's chemical change, you need a cause. And if there's change in people, if people radically are transformed, suddenly changed, you got to say, what changed them? And sure enough, as we look at the evidence, I could point to Peter. Peter, on the night of the crucifixion, it's just a fact, he wimped out. He, he backed off in his loyalty to Jesus. He was asked, are you one of the disciples? And he freaked out and said, no, I don't know the man. And he was a coward running for his life. And that same Peter, 50 days later, is boldly standing in the center of Jerusalem, proclaiming to thousands, risking his life, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and the only hope of the world. And you say, wow, what a change in 50 days. What changed? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter had breakfast with the resurrected Christ. And he realized, I was wrong. He is who he says he is. What was I thinking? And Peter was infused with courage. I could talk about Paul. Paul, the number one enemy of Christians back in the early days. The the persecutor, the murderer of the early Christians suddenly flipped and became a proponent, a passionate, lived and died serving this Christ. You say, what happened with Paul? He met the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. Uh, That resurrection is what showed him I was wrong. But I'm not going to talk about Peter or Paul. I want to talk instead about James. And this is kind of fun. I want to show you here an ossuary found in the Royal Ontario Museum. And an ossuary is a bone box. It's a unique burial procedure only used for the first century. So whenever you find an ossuary, you know it dates to the first century because this practice was a short-lived one. They would put people in a tomb. They would let them rot for a couple years. And once the body had rotted, they would take the bones and put them in a box, a small box, able to store the remains of a lot of family members in a small family tomb. And so what's unique about this ossuary is that engraved in small letters that you really can't see here, but it says, James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. Now, I want to admit that it's highly contested, but many scholars are convinced that this is, in fact, the bone box of James from the Bible, the brother of Jesus. And uh, that's the James I want to talk with you about. Because James didn't start off with much fondness for his brother's messianic claims. Here's uh, John 7, 5. It says, even his own brothers did not believe in him. By the way, whenever the Bible acknowledges something that's unbecoming to the Christian cause, even secular 
people will say, oh yeah, well that's true. (laughs) So everybody agrees that this is fact. His brothers didn't buy it. And I suppose that's understandable when you've been raised with your human brother and he starts saying, I'm God. You're like, yeah, bro, I don't think so. You know, I heard you belch, you know, I'm not not believing that this is true. And James was like, no, I'm not in. But here's something that happened later. This is a later description of James found in Galatians 1.9. Paul says, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. (laughs) James flipped. He went from being against his brother to devoted to his brother's cause so dramatically that he rose in leadership to the level of apostle, which is the highest level of authority entrusted to Christian leaders in that day. You're like, wow, did James change? Well, how do we know that, that, uh, you know, those, that Paul was recording this, who was a Christian at the time, isn't lying about James and his devotion to Jesus? Well, Let's go to another secular, non-Christian historian. This one's uh, Flavius Josephus. Flavius Josephus was a Jewish historian, the most prolific and famous historian of the first century. And he wrote about what was happening in his day throughout the whole Mediterranean world. And he describes the trial of James. He says, Albinius, who was in charge of the Sanhedrin at the time, Albinius assembled the Sanhedrin of the judges and brought before them James, the brother of Jesus, and some of his companions. And he formed an accusation against them as lawbreakers, and he delivered them to be stoned to death. (laughs) Was James, the brother of Jesus, eventually devoted to his brother's cause? (laughs) Yeah, it's a historical fact. In fact, he was so committed he died for his brother's cause. Friends, when you realize that people flipped, like James, who once was against Christ and suddenly became devoted to Christ, what could explain that change? Well, the Bible tells us. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us a list of all of those who encountered the risen Christ, the resurrected Christ. And in that list, verse 7 says this, Then Jesus appeared to James. Let's imagine that moment where the resurrected Christ comes up and says, hey, bro. And James is like, oh, my. James said, Jesus, what can I say? I was wrong. Clearly, I was wrong, and I am sorry, and you have my life and devotion. It was the resurrection that caused the radical swing in James. Let's do a review, shall we? Look at this. So what are the historical facts? In the first century, a revolution of phenomenal proportion took place. The resurrection cannot be explained by legend because at the time of the resurrection, in mass, those who had access to the eyewitnesses and the empty tomb, they voted in mass with their lives. It happened. It's a fact in the first century. Execution. Not only were they devoted, but these who claimed to have met and interacted and shared meals with the resurrected Christ went to their death for that claim. Any moment they could have said, all right, it wasn't true. But they said, it's true. Kill us. 
and transformation. People like Paul, people like Peter, and people like James just were transformed. Friends, it's a fact. I had so much fun reading this book, Cold Case Christianity, by Jim Wallace. Jim Wallace is a police officer. He's a homicide detective specializing in cold cases. I didn't even know what a cold case was. But a cold case is an investigation of a crime that's been committed a relative long time ago. But it's still open because it's never been solved. And he specializes in in studying the record of the eyewitness accounts and comparing the various eyewitness stories and figuring out what really happened long ago. And it's interesting, uh, Jim Wallace was an atheist into his mid-30s until he applied his skill to the eyewitness evidence of the greatest crime ever committed, and that's the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his alleged resurrection. He looked at the eyewitness accounts in the Gospels, and he became a Christian. And this book is his story of his investigation of the evidence. And then I came across a, just a little short video of Jim Wallace describing a bit of, of his story. So take a listen. Jim, as a once angry atheist, something about the Gospels struck you as being more than, and I quote you, moralistic mythologies. They actually appeared to be ancient eyewitness accounts, and that, that very fact became important to you. Why? I think because when I first started, I was just interested in Jesus' words. So if it had been just a list, like the Gospel of Thomas, a list of the quotes of Jesus, the kind of proverbial wisdom of Jesus, that would be one kind of document. But, of course, the Gospels aren't that at all. The Gospels appear to be recording a series of events that include Jesus' words, but these appear to be a historical account. And that's a very different proposal altogether. That means that if it is history, if it's a claim about something that actually happened, it means it's falsifiable. In other words, it's like my cold cases. I have people who will say, hey, I saw this, this is what happened, and they give me a narrative. Well, I can actually go in and take a look and see if that's reliable. Is that true? Did it actually happen? Is it falsifiable? And that gives me a point of context, a point of reference to begin an investigation. You'd have a hard time doing that if, for example, all we have is the Gospel of Thomas, a series of proverbial statements for the most part from Jesus. We'd have a really hard time uh, even doing any kind of a historical investigation to see if it actually occurred. But these don't have that kind of contextual feeling. As I read through them, I saw they had properties that were similar to the properties of eyewitnesses when you have more than witness, one witness to a scene in an event. When you have multiple eyewitness accounts, they have a certain characteristic, a certain flavor. And at first, as I read, read through these, I didn't really put my finger on what it was about them I have in the book. But for me, it just my gut instinct as an investigator said, wow, that's interesting. I've seen that before in, in a robbery. I've seen that before in a homicide account. So I, 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 it just caused me to take the next step. I think we're blessed as Christians that we don't believe something that's not rooted in history. We believe something that had to actually occur. As Paul said, if the resurrection didn't actually occur in history, we're to be pitied. We're, they're lying as eyewitnesses, he says. We're, we're a lie. It's all a lie. And that's the beautiful thing about Christianity is it's something you can actually investigate. I'm grateful for that because as an investigator, that's exactly how I came to faith.